0: Is the bloody, disgusting podcast network.
1: This is the one night and all sorts of things.
2: <laughs> Roam free. Boils and ghouls, lock your doors and strap yourselves in From Los Angeles, California Bloody Disgusting presents The Boo Crew Podcast Horror news, commentary, reviews, interviews, and more With your hosts Tim Timebomb, Leone D'Antonio, Lauren and Trevor Shan, Austin Wilkin and Rachel Tejada Let's
1: go!
0: Hey, I'm Leo. I'm Lauren.
1: I'm Trevor. And And we're we're the Blue Blue Crew! Welcome to episode 80. If you're listening to this at time of release, we continue our Halloween week festivities with the creator of what has become an absolutely iconic part of the season. The movie Trick or Treat and the beloved character of Sam. Writer, director, and artist Mike Doherty is hanging with you. We
3: delve into the complete history of the film, the magic behind Sam, Mike's obsession with the holiday itself, his love and experiences with the paranormal, plus Will there be a sequel?
1: Detox orchestrating puppet battles in Krampus, designing deities in Godzilla, King of the Monsters, and hints at what's next.
3: There's only one thing left to do.
4: You know the rules. This is Mike Doherty with some important Halloween guidelines. Always wear a costume, always check your candy, and always listen to the Boo Crew.
2: Go ahead, scream. That's all we need. Another victim crawls onto the gurney for a Boo Crew autopsy. All these traditions... Wait, wait. Oh, what? You're supposed to keep it lit. Why?
0: Ancient tradition.
2: Putting on costumes. I look like I'm five. You look great. What, what do we do now? We meet our dicks.
1: Jack-o'-lanterns.
3: Why are we here? To pay our respects to the dead. The Halloween school bus massacre.
1: It started to protect us, but...
2: in guys. name are you doing down there? Hiding bodies?
1: Nowadays, no one really cares.
2: This one's the lit.
1: Joining the Boo Crew in the Speakeasy Studio is perhaps the heartbeat of our generation's cinematic monsters and creatures. A mischievous artist who turned his own doodles and sketches into icons, crafted a childhood filled with the whimsy of kaiju into a towering spectacle of reverence never before experienced. He is a director, producer, and writer whose credits include creating the screenplay for X2 and X-Men Apocalypse Superman Returns. It was in 2007 and his macabre exploration into the traditions of Halloween through the lens of candy bars and EC Comics that not only paid tribute to his favorite holiday, but something magical happened. His story and original characters were soaked into the lexicon of the holiday itself. He did it again with his original take on the legend of Krampus in 2015, and this year left us breathless with Godzilla, King of the Monsters. His projects are love letters, approached with so much passion that we can't help but to embrace them. We are honored to welcome Mr. Mike Doherty.
2: Woo! Yeah!
4: Thank you. That's Thank the best you. introduction i ever heard. Wow. <laughs> my parents would be proud.
3: <laughs> we can mail them a copy. Yeah.
4: <laughs>
1: what was your relationship like with the world of monsters, horror, and fantasy
4: growing up? Was there a gateway experience? I grew up watching black and white monster movies. It was a really interesting combination. It was black and white monster movies on Saturday mornings. The Godzilla Hanna-Barbera cartoon show. Yeah. So Saturday morning cartoons would bleed into my Local stations, Monster Weekend Theater. I don't know what they called it specifically, but it was just a really amazing combination of superheroes, Godzilla movies, black and white monster movies, and every now and then a kung fu flick. (laughs)
2: Nice. (laughs) You know, and it
4: was the early days of cable. And so what was happening was, you know, all the cable stations, much like the streamers now, were just dumping everything they could from their libraries. To keep you watching their various cable stations so it became a great way to catch up on all the movies and tv shows that my f- parents and grandparents grew up watching Right. So that kind of became sort of an early film school. It seemed to be an event right?
1: You had to be there to watch this stuff at yeah. a certain time Do you feel like that
4: is affecting the creators of today? Losing that spirit? I don't know. I mean that's a good question. Saturday mornings, afternoons were definitely sort of an appointment that you kept as a kid. Thank God you got through the drudgery of another week at school yeah, and so right. Saturday was <laughs> reward. Oh God, Saturday was just a relief You poured yourself a bowl of cereal and mean sat down and you watch tv in your pajamas usually with your siblings or your friends who had slept over so there was a ritual to it everything that you got on saturday was a reward now everything's available anytime anywhere so i don't know i mean i, I don't have kids so I don't know if they have the same kind of ritual or not.
3: I feel like our kids' their ritual is to go downstairs, have cereal, right? That's still yeah. And but then they go on their iPad
4: Interesting. and they
3: find videos and
4: TikToks mm-hmm. and we're doomed. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> we're pretty <all> much. Doomed.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but
1: yeah. mostly, no, like, like mostly, what it is is kids opening toys and playing with
4: the stuff, you know, yeah. and they're watching other kids have I that guess experience. You know, I, I, I'm starting to feel like you know the old man saying get off my lawn right right. But <laughs> i just right. i do think it, it would be better off if today's generation of kids were watching boris karloff and yeah. you know <laughs> universal monster movies or godzilla movies versus crap on tiktok yes <laughs> i sorry. agree i agree was i agree there a, was there a specific title that hooked you that, that really got a hold of you like man this is great twilight zone because that was definitely part of the lineup again i would start with the cartoons that would bleed into into godzilla movie and then it was some form of a black and white monster movie. And then a Twilight Zone would sort of cap off the afternoon. Right. <laughs> Do you have a favorite episode of a Twilight Zone? Oh, God, there's so many to pick from. As soon as you think you have a favorite, you right. think of another one. But Monsters Are Due on Maple Street is probably really up there. Because I think that its themes are still relevant today, especially today.
1: What were you we reading around that time? Can you describe the magic of being exposed to things like Tales from the Crypt and the EC comic series and creepy mm-hmm. and stuff like that? Like that. Yeah, I
4: had a stack of creepy and eerie comics that my dad had given me. Starlog, Fangoria, Fantastique, Any book that I could get about the supernatural, about the making of a given movie that I loved. Sundays are spent in the library. Saturdays I was in front of the TV, and then Sundays I would go to the library. And uh, just check out books about whatever topics fascinated me. And a lot of times the love of a given horror or sci-fi movie would lead to the occult or paranormal section. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so I'm like checking out li- like uh, Chariots of the Gods. I remember that book. Yeah. Oh, you know, my God. So- that was freaky. But what I love about the genre stuff, especially for me as a kid, at least, was a lot of them are seeded with the idea that some of these topics are based on reality or at least theories. So yeah, you know, I would watch Carrie. And then that would lead to a fascination in psychic phenomenon. Watch Close Encounters and then read books about UFOs. Right. And the movies were sort of a gateway drug to much more interesting topics and books. What right. was the movie around, around that time that terrified you? I mean, the first Elm Street, that one genuinely kept me awake. I'll never forget watching yeah. that one with my sister. The Changeling.
0: Oh, that's a good one. another Scott, one. Yeah.
4: I still have to revisit those every Halloween.
1: It was back when you were a film student at NYU that you began sketching what would become yeah. Sam from mm-hmm. Trick or Treat. What was the genesis of that character's
4: look? A lot of different doodles. I knew I wanted to come up with something that hearkened to a scarecrow, sort of like a kid's scarecrow outfit. From the very beginning, I knew that he was masquerading as a kid. The idea that the spirit of Halloween, would disguise himself as a trick-or-treater. And part of the genesis of that was the Great Pumpkin from Charlie Brown. Yeah. yeah. Because my inner child is Linus. You know, I mean, the rest of the peanuts are idiots. (laughs)
2: Linus is
4: the one, you know, Linus is the one who's out there waiting for the spirit of Halloween to show up so he can pay him tribute, as he should. And you always felt bad for him because, like, he had this faith and something deeper and darker than the rest of the peanuts, the Great Pumpkin. <laughs> yeah. And the Great Pumpkin never showed up. So I, I, in the back of my head, it was like, well, what if this was the Great Pumpkin? I like the idea that Sam, the spirit of Halloween, would blend in with the rest of the trick-or-treaters. And that if he came knocking on your door, you would never be able to discern him from one of the other kids. So I knew that. I, I knew that it had to be something that felt almost timeless also. I was fascinated and still am fascinated with the sort of vintage photos of trick-or-treaters going back to the 20s and 30s. are creepy. so creepy. Yeah. yeah, like when they had to make their own costumes yeah. Yeah. and sew them and they're sort of lopsided and like there's something so much more genuine and heartfelt about them yeah so i wanted to come up with a character that could fit in present day or possibly pop up one of those old photographs
3: wonder if like people today could make a costume that creepy like i don't think they could
4: i, I think if you let a kid if you made a kid actually sit down and cobble together their own outfit with paper bags and paper mache you would Probably have a similar effect. <laughs>
2: we should let our kids yeah, do that. see yeah. what happens. Yeah.
3: <laughs> <laughs> this year, you're making your own costume, exactly. kids. Yeah.
1: The drawings in that world became a short film. Talk a bit about how that was a real labor of love. You had a lot of help
4: doing that. It yeah. Was a big ordeal. It took about the same time that it does a gestated child, nine months. <laughs> oh <my laughs> you gosh. know, so I'm, I'm never having kids. Sam's my kid. Yeah. You know, And it was all drawn by hand. This was... 1995, 1996. So this is long before computer technology had become so common. Nowadays, kids can make something on their iPhone if yeah. they made the effort, and it would be done in a couple of days. If I had to remake the short film, I could probably have it done in a week or two. But every single drawing was done by hand, and then that drawing was colored with a marker. And then that drawing was sliced out of the paper with an x knife oh and then rubber cemented onto an animation cell. Jeez. And then each animation cell was photographed, um, you know, under one of those giant heavy-duty Disney-style animation cameras, taken to the lab, edited on a flatbed. There were no computers involved in the making of the original short film. Oh, wow. It was very labor-intensive, but it was also very meditative. To this day, if I get stressed out, I sort of flash myself back to the days of drawing Sam in the NYU animation department because I would be there from I had to work full time I I was working three jobs. And so I would show up in the animation department around six, seven o'clock in the evening and work till two, three in the morning every night. But the beauty of it is that I had the floor to myself. So I'd pop in horror movies, sci-fi movies, play music. And I just sort of had this animation studio to myself, and it was just me and Sam for months doing that. Then I would enlist like other film students to help out and pay them in pizza and beer, and it was it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. So it was years
1: later that I remember seeing a trailer for what became the film Trick or Treat. <laughs> seeing this trailer, it was a real monumental moment. There was flashes of imagery that radiated the season and what Halloween is in a way that I don't think anyone had ever seen before in a film. And you just saw the images of the jack-o'-lanterns decorating a pathway Mm -hmm. with the girl dressed in the red riding hood outfit, visions of the school bus massacre kids and all these things. And it was just like, this is insane. Mm -hmm. And then the trailer kind of disappeared and (laughs) I'd hear about maybe a blogger or someone having seen the film, but it became a mythological film. <laughs> and It wasn't something you could go and find. Right. There was no streaming services yet at that point either. And it would show up at festivals. Maybe you'd hear about other people who'd seen it, but there's no way of getting it. Yeah. So starting from the beginning of actually turning it into a film,
4: what was the process of actually getting it released? It was hell. It was probably one of the darkest periods of my life because I had poured so much love into it. It was a passion project. And I was keenly aware that there was an audience for this kind of movie since Carpenter's film, there hadn't been a a movie that really embraced the holiday and celebrated it and captured that sort of imagery that you're talking about. As much as I love Carpenter's film and I love it, it was shot in the middle of the summer. So it's very green. They talk about how they had like three bags of leaves that they had to sort of (laughs) reuse over and over again and like scattered them on some lawns and a couple pumpkins here and there. Having grown up in Ohio and loved the holiday, I just had never seen a movie that sort of captured the colors, the atmosphere, the celebration of Halloween. This was my love letter to the holiday and everything that it stood for. And so it hurt. It hurt a lot that the studio got cold feet, that it felt like you know I was crawling through glass to finish it and then had to crawl through more glass to try and get it released. Looking back on the process and how it kind of became Forbidden Fruit. It really did. It gives me the chills because I I think I would do it that way again. I'm actually convinced that had it gotten just sort of the easy theatrical release, I don't know if it would have become what it became. It might have come out and tanked or underperformed, whatever you want to call it, because it was just a sort of what they call a feathered fish. Like, you can't quite figure out what it is. It's not an easy sell, especially at the time. It was 2007. The predominant horror genre was torture porn, mm-hmm. Saw, yeah. Hostel, nothing yeah. against those movies. But the studios at the time were convinced that those are the only kind of movies that Audiences won. It was not a great time for horror. I mean, we're basically living in a golden age of horror right now. Yep. You know, it's Uh everywhere. Like, horror was not on television. It was just every now and then a Saw or a Hostile movie would come out, and that was kind of it, or a remake of a Japanese horror movie. Mm-hmm. right? And so the studios were convinced that's the only thing audiences wanted to make. And so a horror comedy anthology, those were just the subgenre that they had no clue what to do with. So the easier decision for them was oh, just throw it out to DVD. But what was interesting was that those were also the early years of social media and Netflix. And so Trick or Treat became this wonderful guinea pig that showed how powerful social media and streaming could be and it taught me a lesson in that really quickly because i'll never forget i went to a fangoria convention i want to say 2007 we had an audience of like 30 people show up to show some clips but it was the beginning of twitter i was watching people tweet about it and it just blew up from there so all of a sudden like on social media whether it was facebook or i think myspace might have still existed back then yeah yeah it did between twitter myspace facebook netflix it rallied its audience, it found its audience. So it was a really interesting lesson in how theatrical was starting to go the way of the dinosaur.
0: Around that time, we, the three of us, went to go see it at mm. Screamfest. Uh huh. Screamfest was a big one. Yeah, yeah, we sat there, we saw it, and I think the cast was there too. I think afterwards we all looked at each other we're like when's this movie coming out you know, we're, we're excited about it <laughs> yeah and we became your disciples man we told
4: everyone for me. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah
0: we told everyone about this movie because we were figuring that it'd be in theaters and within weeks but know? that's
4: part of the fun of it i think again I, the reason i would be willing to go through that hell again is that there's a very rare joy in creating a film where the audience gets to prop it up. It's true, right? No, we we love this. They give the middle finger to the system, the man, whatever you want to call it. And they say, no, we love this and we're going to support it. Because a lot of times you make a movie, and I just went through one, where there's a marketing machine and they've got promotional deals and TV spots, and they almost create mass hypnosis to convince people, this is a good movie and you should go see it. And this had none of that. You know, it's bare minimum marketing support and distribution when it got eventually released on DVD. So its audience was predominantly grown through pure word of mouth, whether it was, you know, you telling friends, emailing, texting or social media. And that's a rare event. And it's something that I wish every filmmaker could experience is that, you know, that when people come up to you and they say they loved it, that they're being honest because they weren't marketed. They were just sort of exposed via friends and word of mouth and they watched it and fell in love with it. And there's a lot of films through history that sort of get to do that. I'll never forget when I was in high school and a friend just passed me a VHS tape and he said, watch this. Don't ask questions, just watch it. And it was Harold and Maude. I had never heard of it. And to this day, it's one of my all-time favorite movies. There's a joy to discovering a film and falling in love with it versus it's unavoidable and it's on Pepsi cans and Taco Bell <laughs> meal deals and all that. Kind
2: of <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah, I remember it really became a rite of passage to seek out if you were lucky enough to see Trick or Treat finally. Because after we had seen it, again, it was a while leading up to it, having heard about it, and all of a sudden, oh my gosh, there's a showing of this at Scream Fest. We gotta go. Yeah. This thing looks incredible. I've been hearing about it forever. We go and see it. Then we're like, we got to see it again. Yeah. It might not ever come out. <laughs> What's going to happen? Oh, there's a contest and there's 30 tickets to go and see it again. And it became like something yeah. that you tried to seek out and you <laughs> wanted yeah. to do. There's 30 tickets left. You got to go see. And it's very much what you're saying. It was a real phenomenon. Yeah, you know?
4: it was fun to sort of nurture that to Legendary's credit because they never gave up on the movie. We sort of cobbled together a strategy for taking it out to festivals nice. and one of brothers was nice and to say fine we'll give you a couple prints but I had to physically lug those prints <laughs> oh, wow. oh, to like every screening and I remember I had to fly to Sitges in Spain and I had to carry the prints, and they wouldn't let me check the prints. I had to buy a seat on the plane oh, next geez. to me. Oh no! Right, way. and these are heavy. Like, like carrying your oh, film yeah. print is yeah. heavy. And like, I had to pad the handles on the film canisters because <laughs> they're like cutting into my hands. Oh, and man. it was like it was a rite of passage. I bled for this thing, but like I was willing to do it because I loved it so much. Going back, was it a hard film to get made even before yes. the releasing and everything? Extremely. The first draft was. Finished 2001 and spent about five years in development hell at various studios. But interestingly enough, the first producer who really fell in love with it was Stan Winston. So, what happened was I was talking to Stan back in like the late 90s, early aughts about working together on some projects. He saw the short film, he saw Season's Greetings and really loved it. And he's the one that said, You need to be out here in LA making movies. He goes, I know you're doing animation in New York, but you should. Come out here and let me know when you're in town and we'll sit down and talk about it. So I bought a plane ticket the next day, and like <laughs> flew out to L.A. And we sat and he was one of my idols growing up. He's like, listen, it's like if you have any ideas or you have a spec, just let me know. And that gave me the motivation to spend the summer writing the script. And I finished it in like late September, early October. And so he was the first guy to say, OK, this is great. It's a modern day creep show. Let me try to assemble some directors and maybe we can take this out. And so he cobbled together George Romero, Toby Hooper, John Carpenter, and himself.
2: Oh, and, wow. and I was like, wow, okay. Oh I just God. I just
4: assembled the super friends <laughs> yeah. of horror. And every studio came back with the following notes. This movie feels too old fashioned. It's filled with vampires, zombies, and werewolves. Those are too old-fashioned. Nobody wants to see those things anymore. (laughs) Uh. And it was like, okay, now look at us. We can't swing a dead cat without hitting vampires. Yeah, exactly, right? I personally felt a lot of the studios were disrespectful to the filmmakers we assembled. Right. Because they were very dismissive of them at the time. But now they can't stop remaking their movies. So the lesson there is that horror is cyclical. So what's hot now won't be probably in five years. And what's not popular now probably will be. It constantly repeats itself. What seems to be in cycles of like 30 years or so. I was trying to get TV anthology shows going back in like 2004 and my agents wouldn't even set up those meetings. Oh. You know, they're like, anthology's dead. It's dead. Don't even bring up the A word or you're going to get kicked out of the room.
2: <laughs> you know, <laughs> look at us now, now right now. It's all it's
4: all <laughs> back. pre-show Twilight Zone. Yeah, exactly. It's, right. back. it's yeah. all back. Yeah. <laughs> Granted, I was being defiant in a way because, again, at the time it was like scream knockoffs, Japanese horror and torture porn those yeah. were like the three horror genres that were being made and i was like no i want creep show i want tales from the dark side and so i just Poured my love into what I knew and what I respected and just went for it. So I was swimming against stream, but I was adamant that there was something here. It was a hard five years of trying to get it off the ground because we kept hearing the same sort of ignorant notes from the powers that be.
0: How did you come up with this incredible cast? Because I remember Dylan Baker. I remember seeing him in a disturbing movie called Happiness. Yes,
4: very disturbing.
0: (laughs) And then uh, Brian Cox was the original Hannibal Lecter. Yep. And then you have Academy Award winning Anna Paquin. Yep. I'm like, holy shit. I mean, this movie's got it
4: all, man. How'd you come up with this cast? Well, I had worked with Anna and Brian Cox on X-Men too, Right. And so I'd become pretty tight with Anna. And so that was an easy ask. So I just slipped her the script and she's like, hell yeah, play a werewolf I'm in. And this is before True Blood. And then Brian Cox, also easy. And then Dylan Baker, one of my agents had worked with him on a project and I just wrote him a very sweet letter and it had the script. And I also had, I think, four or five different pieces of concept art, some paintings. He was also very quick, easy. Yes, yeah, so honestly, it's probably the easiest time I've had casting a movie. Really? Yeah. But it was important to me that every segment be centered around at least some familiar face. The one with the kids was the biggest exception. But that was the fun of that sequence, too, is that it was all fresh faces. The imagery from this film that's like burned into everybody's
1: heads, one of which I mentioned earlier is the scenes of. A house covered in Mm
4: jack-o'-lanterns. Yeah. Did you ever see that image before or what brought that out? The Halloween tree, Ray Bradbury. Oh, okay. I had seen paintings and there was a TV special that was done back in the 80s, I think. So just the image of hundreds or dozens of jack-o'-lanterns. I think there's some Charles Adams paintings that might have inspired that a little bit too. Honestly, it was just a hodgepodge, a stew of different things that I've been absorbing ever since I was a kid. There was a movie, a TV movie in the 80s called The Midnight Hour, which was influential. That scared me as a kid. I remember coming home from trick-or-treating and watching that, and that was like the first movie that sort of posed the idea of like, what if the supernatural came to life on Halloween? What if it really became real? Different episodes of Twilight Zone, Creepshow, Tales from the Crypt, what have you. All seeped in.
1: Yeah. The School Bus Massacre. Mm. (laughs) The masks, design, and everything. Everything like that, like you were saying, those pictures of trick-or-treaters in the 20s and 40s very much brought to life. It has such a strong visual impact. What was designing that whole storyline like as far as the mask design? the way that the look of it looks so unsettling, the way they moved even.
4: Yeah. Well, I mean, the original inspiration for it was I hated going to school. The school bus <laughs> to me was just like a chariot of death everybody. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's just like to this day, I'm not a morning person to this day. I have to like force myself out of bed in the morning. I'm nocturnal mm-hmm. by nature. The last thing that I ever wanted to see in the morning was the school bus pulling up in front of the curb. There was definitely a lot of emotion poured into that. And plus just the dread of like once you get your seat filled with a bunch of little assholes that you don't want to be around (laughs) knowing that you have this whole day with them ahead so like i just have bad feelings about school buses (laughs) and i'll admit it like when i was a kid like the first time i ever realized i was mortal that i was going to die one day was on the back of a school bus (laughs) (laughs) probably like five years old in first grade and just had this realization that like man someday i'm gonna die That's going to suck. And like looking out, there's like a crow sitting on this. I was a morbid little kid. You know, it just made sense to me to sort of try and take all the dark emotions that I've correlated with school buses and school and, and try and cobble together sort of a little creepy horror tale to go with it. I was fascinated with the idea of adding sort of a revenge story to trick-or-treat and I was a fan of horror movies that were willing to cross that line of willing to kill kids and there's a lot of them that's what we forget yeah, is yeah. that if you try to make a horror movie in the studio today and you have kids in jeopardy as the first note a lot of times that will come up as like oh you can't have kids in jeopardy that's too much. You're crossing a line. It's like, I'm sorry. I watched Jaws and like 11, 12 year old uh, kid bites it in the first 20 minutes yeah. of the movie. Children of the corn. Children of the corn. Well, they're the ones doing the killing, <laughs> you know, but <laughs> right. The Shining, two yeah. dead little girls in a hallway, you know what I mean? The Exorcist, Poltergeist. Yeah. It's a rich tradition of putting kids in jeopardy because kids are the innocent. They can never be harmed. They are meant to carry on our lives as adults. So they're seen as this sort of forbidden fruit. I wanted to make a movie where I said, or make a short, where I said, fuck that. No, all these kids are going to die and they're going to deserve <laughs> it. I, yeah, I, I looked at photographs of trick-or-treat costumes from yesteryear. Again, like Sam, I wanted him to feel sort of almost like companions to him that if he was going to go trick-or-treating it'd probably be with this crew gotcha and that he could blend in with them or that if they did come back to life as zombies which they do and shuffled around trick-or-treating right. that you wouldn't think anything of it
1: how did you execute that in their movements and everything
4: the look of them was very unique worked with a costume designer some sketches of my own had lots of reference photos it was a really fun process and then we cast it with a really interesting group of people, some of whom were actually had suffered from various deformities. There was one gentleman who had lost his lower legs, the guy with the Buddha head. Yeah. Like he actually has no lower body. <gasps> oh, wow. Yeah. It was a really interesting day casting because one day we had people with various disfigurements coming in to audition on the same day as various werewolf girls. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh
2: my gosh. So you had a
4: waiting room filled with both. So I don't know what each party was thinking about. About the other, or what kind of movie they thought they were getting involved in, right? You know, but went from auditioning various kinds of zombies and seeing how they walked with their disabilities to werewolf girls like dancing, right? <laughs> you right. know, exactly. like trying to check out the dance moves of like all these different women. It was a day.
3: I want to talk about one of my favorite things to talk about, which is props. Did you keep anything from Trick or Treat, and like, where is all this stuff?
4: Well, it's a (laughs) Good news and bad news Okay, Uh, I I knew the
3: bad news (laughs) Some of the props
4: Some of the props Still exist And are safe In the Warner Brothers Archives (laughs) Yep uh Uh, Oh man My eye is Um, (laughs) spazzing Others Sadly Just got sold off Like sold off At auction Like Dylan Baker's mask Just got sold off At some auction I have the school bus Miniature Really? Yes Which is fantastic While we did throw An actual full sized Short bus off a cliff For the shot of it sinking into the water That was a miniature must have been therapeutic for you To throw that full-size bus Awesome That was the best day of his life (laughs) A lot of the masks that the kids wore From the school bus For whatever reason The Warner Brothers archive folks Didn't see any reason to hold on to them So they sold them off Luckily a lot of them were found By actual fans of the movie Oh, that's funny Where the
3: hell is my mask? (laughs) Yeah
4: (laughs) Didn't one show up at an auction? The The vampire kid's Yeah, the vampire Yeah, Yeah. 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 that's one of them At least it's in safe hands That's true That's what matters to me.
1: I'm not sure how the process works as far as a filmmaker goes, but is it customary to have access to that stuff after a production is wrapped? Do you get to keep maquettes and all that kind of thing? Um,
4: I actually ever since Trick or Treat have it written into my contract now. Oh wow. Nice. That I get to keep. I want to say four to five key props. Oh, that's great. Wow. Yeah. That's not always necessary because a lot of times things fall off trucks, I guess. Sure, you know, or <laughs> you know, prop department will quietly gift certain Things, but I wanted to be on the up and up and just say, like, oh, nope, it's in my contract. I went that, 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 and that. So, nice. both from Krampus and Godzilla, I've got some key toys. Oh, oh that's yeah. so yeah, that's cool. That's so fun. How did you do the vomiting scene? Charlie's a uh, vomiting scene. <laughs> oh, that was awesome. So, we concocted this mixture of actual chocolate oh, and no. like bits of candy. <laughs> and, and the prop guys they whipped up this amazing like vomit rig. And so, there was like a big tub of this chocolate off to one side off camera and a tube that ran up brett kelly's back and like one side and on cue it would just work it would just vomit (laughs) like projectile vomit it and then obviously we would get coverage and shoot it from different angles and then we also would paint out the tube occasionally if it showed up. There were a couple moments where I just had him like gulp down a big amount of it and just sort of, <laughs> you know. But uh, yeah, that was one of my favorite. That was like our, I think, the second day of shooting. That was something we got to play with.
0: Yeah, favorite scenes when Dylan Baker's carrying him. He's still vomiting on the back of his shirt. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh
4: God,
3: you know what God. I was really impressed with was the trick or treat maze at Universal yeah. that captured that scene.
1: Oh yeah,
4: that did over and over again. yeah. I could have just
3: stood there for like 20 minutes and just watched it over and over Uh, again.
4: Yeah, the Horror Nights guys are so much fun to work with. They did such a phenomenal job, both on the Trick or Treat and the Krampus mazes.
3: How Um, much input did you have in those mazes?
4: I sort of just let them do their thing. If people want to create Trick or Treat, Krampus merchandise, horror mazes, what have you, both Orlando and Hollywood had their own sort of separate attractions, but they pour so much hard work and love into what they do because they're genuinely fans. This isn't just some job to them. They care about every detail and capturing the vibe of the movie. And so when John Murdy finally gave me the walkthrough, it was just, it was great. Like my one note was, yeah, throw another fog machine over there and add some more leaves. Other than that, I think you guys nailed it. So that's it's just a fun. It's just fun to sort of collaborate with people who are just as passionate as you are.
1: Did you ever see that fan-made trick-or-treat maze that was out in Thousand
4: Oaks I before didn't. the Universal? I heard was- about it, but I didn't get to see it. Uh, yeah, that it was, was awesome. Yeah, they did a great job. That's been the best thing about this whole sort of afterlife of the movie is how much the fan... Fans continue to keep it alive. So whether it's their costumes, their tattoos, their home haunts, what have you, it brings genuine joy to see like how much fans have rallied around it because it's just so rare for a movie to have that. All these movies that make billions of dollars or win Oscars, what have you. I'm sorry, until you've had a character that you've created tattooed on someone else's body <laughs> like, <laughs> that beats any award you could ever possibly hand me. Because sure. you know, that's, that's a permanent decision. Like, their corpse will have that you know, <laughs> when they're put into the ground. It's
3: true. And we've taken our little Sam statue to conventions and mm. stuff, and it's crazy to see so many little kids will be like, so excited. Sam, yeah. Sam, Sam. Yep. The parents are like, oh my gosh, it's Sam. Like yeah. It's like a family thing. And yeah. it's like, it's that huge.
1: Sam has
4: really become the Santa Claus of Halloween, really. Well, like, that was the intent. You know? Yeah, that was honestly the intent. <laughs> Reluctant to share the story, but... When I was doing the original animated short, there was an evening very late when I was working on a drawing of Sam's face. It's like one of the actually it's the last shot of the movie. It's when we reveal what he really is. And so it's a very tight close up and of his mask. And I was working with an exacto blade and I'd accidentally cut my hand as a result. So I was bleeding. It wasn't a mortal wound, obviously, but it was pretty heavy. Lots of, <laughs> enough blood to go. Oh, shit, I'm bleeding. Yeah. <laughs> But I mean, as luck would have it, the final shot required blood to be splattered on Sam's face because this is just after he's dispatched the Halloween stalker that had been following him and he lured into the alley. I hadn't drawn the blood on the face yet. And I was like, well, I'm bleeding. I need blood, so fuck it. And I, I made a very, I closed my eyes. I'll never forget this. I closed my eyes and I made a very quiet, dark wish to myself. <laughs> <laughs> I do oh, no. like, if there are any forces of darkness out there, help me finish this film and help Sam find a long life with the intent that like, he could possibly become some sort of horror icon or holiday icon at the very least. And so I took my blood and I splattered it across the drawing of Sam's face and made that wish.
2: Wow! That's amazing. Best story ever.
4: So truth is, witchcraft is real.
2: (laughs) It can work for you too. Just follow my
4: seminar. (laughs) Now I know
1: everybody's talking to you about this and it seems to be the appropriate part in this conversation to bring it up. Everyone wants a sequel, obviously. Is there a, a hesitancy based on the fact that what happened with this movie is so much a lightning in the bottle mm-hmm. experience, this once in a blue moon experience. Mm-hmm. Is there a hesitance to even go back and revisit it? I'm sure people would give you the
4: tools in order to do it again, but is it best left as it is? I don't know. I mean, that's honestly, I'm I'm a bit of a crossroads myself because there was a period when we were very gung-ho about <laughs> making a sequel. Then I ended up getting Krampus and Godzilla, so some other monsters decided to use me as a portal to enter our reality. <laughs> now that those two are sort of put to rest, it's come back around. And I don't know, I've, maybe there's hesitancy. It's a different regime at Legendary now. You know, I have to admit, like... Part of me is concerned that as much as I enjoy sort of the popularity of reboots and sequels and remakes, I love a good sequel. My favorite movie is Aliens. The Thing is one of my favorite movies, and that's a remake. I don't have a predisposition against sequels and remakes, quite the opposite. But there is something to be said about just leaving it the fuck alone. Like, we don't have Beetlejuice 2.
3: There's no Shaun of the Dead (laughs) 2.
4: You know? On the other hand, we've seen a lot of our favorite movies get remade, rebooted, and sequelized, and we've seen sort of the ebb and flow of quality Mm -hmm. as a result. So it would be disappointing to embark on another adventure and try to capture that same dark magic and have it be underwhelming. That said... It could be interesting to do maybe a trick or treat Halloween special for Netflix. You know, one of my favorite things growing up was Disney's Halloween treat. Yes. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Like to this day, I sort of have to find it on YouTube and just put it on in the background. So maybe there's something to be said about a one hour special on Netflix or Amazon or Hulu that isn't an official sequel, but is sort of in the spirit of that. Gotcha. And you, you did know? return to the world of Sam with those amazing shorts he did for Fearnet. Yeah, we did yes. those. Yeah. Those were a lot of fun. I consider those canon. And we also did two chapters of comic books. Yes, that's right. You know, which also continue the storyline and actually go back in time to see him in other time periods. Those have been fun because you know it's, it's much less pressure, obviously, but it's a way to keep him alive. I don't know. Maybe we don't need a full-fledged sequel to keep his spirit out there. I mean, for one thing, I think it's, he's definitely established himself enough in the imaginations of of the audience. that He's still growing every year. It has to be right. The stars really do have to align. And I'm not going to embark on it unless I feel like, okay, Legendary's fully in. We have the right executive team. We have the right team behind the camera. You have to know in your gut if it's the right time. During the making of the shorts for FearNet, we started to see the
1: inclusion of director Zach Shields, who mm-hmm. has now become part of your writing team mm-hmm. on films like Krampus and Godzilla movie. How did you discover him? Where did you first to link up with him and what did you see in him that was like,
4: this guy's got it. So this is uh, another interesting story. I'm a big fan of synchronicity. For people who aren't familiar with that term, it's just sort of coincidences that sort of fuck with your sense of reality that make you really wonder if you live in, we live in some form of the Matrix or not. <laughs> um, or whether our lives are being influenced by unseen forces. I'm a, I'm a believer. One day I was at a friend's house and he had a serious station on and I heard this song come on. And it just touched something in my heart. It was so it was about werewolves and it had a kid's choir singing in the background. I had never heard anything like it. It sounded like something you would hear at the Haunted Mansion. Or as I like to say, it sounds like what the ghosts in the Haunted Mansion would listen to once the ride shuts down. Oh, that's great. <laughs> you know, I did a Spotify or a, um, a Shazam and the band was called Dead Man's Bones. I'm like, OK, well, it's a spooky song by a band with a spooky name And then I look them up on Amazon and the cover of the album is a group of kids in Halloween costumes that looks like one of the vintage Halloween costumes that I was talking about earlier. And I was like, all right, this is getting weird. Okay. And then I I listened to the rest of the album and all the songs are spooky. They're not metal. They're not hard. They're actually very charming and romantic even and bittersweet. And if you guys aren't familiar with Dead Man's Bones, it's on Spotify and all the music streaming services. I highly recommend it. It's great Halloween season listening. Anyway, I'm falling in love with this album and I see that the two guys who compose the band are Zach Shields, and ryan gosling i'm like oh it must be a different ryan gosling <laughs>
2: <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, but it's to be a coincidence yeah. like, right yeah. what are ryan the gosling Man. can't
4: be this cool <laughs> yeah. you know that he actually <laughs> likes spooky stuff on top of it and actually it turned out it was him i was like all right fine and then i saw that the release date of the album was the same day that trick-or-treat came out no way that trick-or-treat <sighs> came out on dvd and i was like okay this is getting so weird <sighs> you know it's not over. It gets weirder. So then I'm reading the reviews of the Amazon album, and one of the reviews—I'm I'm pretty sure it's still there—if you go all the way back to reviews like from like August 2010, I think one of the reviews says, "If you listen to this album and close your eyes, the movie Trick or Treat will play in your mind."
2: <gasps> wow. wow! No way! <laughs>
4: so I was like, "All right, universe, I." Get it. Clearly I have something in common with these dudes. And then as luck would have it, a friend knew them and said, Oh yeah, you guys would really get along. I'll introduce you to Zach. And we really hit it off instantly. Like he loves spooky stuff. He's not as big into horror necessarily, but he loves just the mythology of like zombies, werewolves, and ghosts, but more from almost sort of the emotional poetic side of it. Sure. Yeah, yeah like a romantic, part of romantic it. Yeah, a romantic aspect of it, you know. And so that's why it's like I saw like, okay, I think we could probably work really well together here.
1: That is fascinating. So, did he have any experience
4: with screenwriting or was it a crash course where you're like, I think you can do this? He was definitely writing short stuff on his own. Not necessarily screenplays, necessarily. He was making short films and they were making their own music videos for the album. But like, we were clearly just sort of kindred spirits and there were enough sort of external signs from the universe to sort of reaffirm that. I'm a big fan of just weird events like that. Yeah, no, that makes sense. It's the best way to live
1: life, I think. You made Krampus, obviously, Mm -hmm. and much like Sam, Krampus comes to you because you've either drifted from tradition or you're doing something maybe that disrupts society in a way. I find that something about your monsters are they aren't necessarily malevolent creatures. Nope. No, my monsters are the good guys. (laughs) Yeah, right? What about telling their stories in that way is more compelling to you? And what dynamics does that afford you in telling that story?
4: I mean, I've always had sympathy for monsters. I think if you go back and you look at the classics, Frankenstein, Dracula, the Wolfman, the Mummy, they're sympathetic. They're outsiders. They are Romantic guys pining for love, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Dracula goes after Mina because he's convinced that she's the reincarnated form of his dead lover. And in some interpretations, That's accurate. They are made to feel like monsters and their motivations are misunderstood and they definitely let their passions carry them too far. So like their methods aren't necessarily that great, but their intentions are. And so I've always had sympathy for monsters. I've always felt like an outsider growing up. I was a half Asian kid growing up in Ohio, and so I got teased a lot. And monsters, science fiction, horror and fantasy were my escape from all that. I felt like I was in better company with monsters than I was with a lot of human beings. At least a monster's honest with you. You know what you're getting at if you just look at them (laughs) in some ways. And another way is like, you know, Frankenstein, especially, they're way more complicated and sympathetic than you think. I'd much rather spend time with Frankenstein's creature than a lot of people I went to school with, (laughs) you know, or a lot of people I worked with. I've always felt that monsters have something to teach us in some form that's why I was always a big fan of like Clive Barker's works too he had the same sort of outlook On creatures. My goal from the very beginning is always sort of build a body of work that forces us to look at monsters in a different way, that they have something to teach us. So whether that's Sam trying to get us to embrace the magic of Halloween and punishing those who don't. Same thing with Krampus. Krampus only goes after you if you're a dick at Christmas. And that's very very much rooted in Charles Dickens or It's a Wonderful Life. Those are two very dark, twisted supernatural stories. In A Christmas Carol, Scrooge is tortured by ghosts that are really externalizations of his own guilt and, and sins and what have you. But he's taken on this dark, supernatural adventure until he learns his lesson. Same okay. thing with It's a Wonderful Life. He's about to commit suicide off a bridge. This is a Christmas movie we watch. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but an angel or a ghost shows up and shows him like, OK, here's what your life would have been like had you never been born. I like supernatural entities that sort of serve as guides and can sort of shape us into better people if we let them. And I'll even throw Godzilla into that category too. Here's like this massive, ancient, primal titan that has something to teach us about the natural world and how... We're a bunch of fucking idiots for the way we're treating it. Krampus was very
1: much done in the spirit of those Amblin films with a big sense of heart Mm -hmm. and a sense of family as well. And also practical effects like you wouldn't believe. Who did you go to in order to create these wonderful puppets and everything that was used in that movie?
4: Well, to get the movie made, we had to do it at a price. I think we ended up around like 15 or 17 million at the end of the day. And that was the goal is to make a very sort of tight claustrophobic movie for a price. And so to do that, part of it was we had a good New Zealand because they had very, very good rebates at the time and great crews. And the other big factor was Weta. Oh, cool. Yeah.
1: Peter Jackson's Weta. Yeah. So,
4: which is actually two companies. There's Weta Effects, which are sort of the practical effects guys, and Weta Digital. They all fall under peter jackson's sort of umbrella but they're two separate companies and they work together all the time obviously but i had gotten a tour of what effects years ago and i've been a fan of theirs forever and you walk through their workshop anytime you get to walk through a creature workshop whether it's henson winston or what it's like you feel the magic as soon as you walk in <sighs> you know, maybe it's the paint fumes. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) It's not like walking into an animation studio or a digital company where it's just a bunch of guys in front of computers. Right. Like there are sculptors, there are painters you see and can touch their work. And so I was in love with Weta Forever and everything just lined up perfectly. Like we got to shoot at Stone Street where they did all the Lord of the Rings movies and Kong right down the street. We had our post facilities, which is right next to the creature shop. And so I spent a lot of time working with Richard Taylor and his crew down there. A lot of times my producers had to drag me out of the creature shop. You know, I made any excuse to go to the creature shop. They're like, oh, we have Krampus's fingernails. All right, see you later.
2: You know, like, I'll be at the
4: creature shop. It was just a lot of fun, you know, because it's just practical effects and camera effects are just so rare these days. Was everything all puppets? No, no. The gingerbread men were digital. Okay, but that's it. Um, so the teddy bear was a puppet.
1: The Jack in the Box guy puppet.
4: Yeah, those were yeah. all suits and puppets. Wow. And then there were a couple shots of Krampus on a rooftop that were digital. Or we would do, my other favorite method is to combine. You would do puppets in camera. And then like with the teddy bear, <laughs> we would paint out the rods or paint out the puppeteer, gotcha. which is just easy. Like that's one of the easiest things you can do these days. I'd read
0: somewhere that the Krampus we see in the movie is not the actual true form.
4: Not his true face. His true face. So we never see his true face. No, we don't. Interesting. So the face that we see, if you watch closely, is just a dead skin mask. All a leather face that's why if you look closely you can see a set of teeth behind sort of the gaping open uh, mouth and a set of eyes blinking <laughs> like within because unlike Sam I wanted to keep Krampus hidden because what I love about Krampus because you know I didn't invent the guy he's been around for centuries <laughs> and so there have been so many interpretations of the character done by so many different cultures I didn't want to be so egotistical as to create the definitive Krampus you know, I wanted to keep that layer of mystery there that no one has ever seen Krampus' true face. Because when you go to Austria or some of these European countries, all these different people like to dress up as the character. And I like the idea that they might all be right. One of them might be right. Who knows? So again, it was, I kept him purposely hidden out of respect for the lore.
3: I remember reading that the snow was diapers, like, cut (laughs) up. It's not
4: that simple.
2: (laughs) What what
3: is it? It looks so real. There's a hell of a lot of it, too.
4: We had a lot of different effects for snow. Some of it was salt. It's like salt has that special glimmer that snow has. The stuff falling from the sky... Was a combination of Soap suds The beauty of that mm-hmm. Is that when it lands on you It actually melts away oh, It's yeah. like a Disneyland where they do. Right yeah. 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 yeah And then um, So there was a lot of that And occasionally digital snow We get added to that The only snow That was diaper filling Was the stuff That the characters Had to trudge through Okay So like whenever you saw them Like up to their knees And snow A lot of that material Was apparently What's inside of A moisture absorbing diapers Okay Diapers right.
3: are yeah. expensive I'm sure like A lot of the budget Went to
4: diapers <laughs> yeah. I don't, well, like, I don't know if they opened up diapers right, they right, it, or, they, or they bought tubs of it. I, yeah. well, I straight probably straight don't to want to no, know. Yeah, but, exactly. Yeah. Well, there's
1: scenes in Krampus, obviously, where everything goes insane with these big battles of all these creatures are right. happening. Mm. Filming that in these confined spaces to allow puppeteers. And
4: how does that work? That must be just a wizardry of orchestration trying to put those things <laughs> together. Yeah, Yeah, it was hard. But again, like Weta knows their shit. They've done this before and they definitely had to resurrect, I think, a few old timers, some old puppeteers who had done this before. But that was the fun of it. I love the Muppets as much as any other kid of the 80s. And so this was sort of my dark... Muppet movie. <laughs> 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 was there any significance to the uh, cool glyphs that were on the heads of some of the dark elves and things? Well, there's a common glyph that I think all the Krampus minions have, and that was just sort of meant to be sort of his... His symbol. Kind yeah. pitchfork yeah. yeah. pitchforkish but also horned beast.
3: What did you keep
4: from Krampus? Just curious. I got the snow globe. Oh, oh nice. Oh, that's it.
3: so awesome.
4: Yeah. God, I'm trying to... And I think I got one of the bells.
3: Ooh, I have the Weta one.
4: I mean, if you have that one, that's basically identical to the one we actually used
3: we have the tree topper
4: oh yeah the cherub yeah, yeah when, it, cherub. when <laughs> it went crazy creating merchandise and like just this morning i saw a new line of merchandise that spirit's working on for next year oh it's fine. So, uh-huh. like
1: krampus stuff that spirit's working on or yes. wow and they just released a bunch of trick-or-treat stuff yeah oh, yeah
4: the spirit halloween merchandise the halloween horror nights mazes a lot of the sort of merchandise that's out there that was all stuff that I sort of like I kept wishing for and focusing on during like the dark years when I wasn't sure if the film was ever going to be released. Recently, I found, I'll never forget it, Like I, I got the phone call that the movie was just going to get dumped the DVD. I want to say 2008, 2009, I got the call. And it was just miserable. I was at a wedding. And I didn't cry about it. I Instead, I got a notebook out and I wrote on three pages all the things that I wanted to come out of this. All the things that we would do in order to make this film become something. I wasn't giving up. I wasn't going to surrender to emaciations of a bunch of bean counters. And I recently found that list, and they all came true. Oh, that's yes. so great! Yes. You know, so and you
3: didn't even need blood. <laughs>
4: didn't <say> didn't <laughs> need
3: blood. I didn't say I
4: did. Yes. Oh, exactly.
2: Damn. <laughs> Spoiler alert! <laughs> <laughs> right.
1: Fast forwarding to Godzilla, King of the Monsters, and this very biblical approach that, that you took to these beings, and very much going back to the fact that these are deities, they're gods, mm-hmm. and you managed to elevate them not only by the incredible VFX and their look and design, but what you also exceeded at was the art of bending the atmosphere around them to elevate them with that beauty.
4: Mm. Was that a conscious thing to do and how was that achieved? Again, I grew up in Ohio and so something that happens when you grew up there is that you... Deal with a lot of tornadoes. And so we would have tornado drills as a kid. That affects you when from the age of three or four you're taught to run to the basement whenever there's a an intense thunderstorm or you hear tornado alarms. So I had this deep fear of just the elements growing up. And that was the closest thing I think you can get to the fear of a giant monster attack. Yeah. <laughs> you know, is like oh shit, the weather's changing and this random destructive force is now, you know, winding its way through your town. That's always been there and that combined with a growing love of Godzilla and giant monster movies in general just sort of became this sort of potent stew also I was raised in Catholic school and 12 years of Catholic school can really mess you up (laughs) but in all the right ways like I, I don't think I'd be who I was if it wasn't for that because You know, you read stories from the Bible and you'll never find a more violent, (laughs) dark, (laughs) twisted, you know, tome full of, like, ghosts and demons and spirits. It's a wonderful way to ferment a young child's sense of fear and wonder about supernatural beings and ancient (laughs) gods but at the same time i was always the kid in the back of the room that was questioning everything whenever the priest volunteered to do q a sessions you know (laughs) (laughs) it's like he's here to talk about first community i'm like what about the devil Uh, (laughs) you know i wanted to bring some of that element to godzilla the idea that it's not just a giant monster. Because what I love about the old Toho movies is that they went there. They didn't stick into just the science fiction aspect of the character or the mythos. They explored sort of the mystical qualities. Mothra is this goddess. Godzilla, even in the original Black and White 54 film, in one scene is called a god. Combining that with sort of my love of like Greek mythology and the concept of the Titans, the idea that there was a race of beings here before mankind ever showed up or even Lovecraft. Obviously, to right. a lot of that stuff. So I just wanted to sort of find a way to like tie all these different explorations of monsters and demons and ancient gods and just bring it into a Godzilla film.
1: How does it feel to have some of those original creatures that you introduced into the lexicon, like Behemoth and Sila, the way that the fans have embraced that? How does that feel? That's
4: awesome, because originally we were hoping to just enlist some additional Toho monsters, but every Toho monster comes with... A price tag. Sure. Like they all have yeah. their fees and you have uh. to negotiate with their agents. And so, even if you want, let's say I wanted to bring in gigan or Kumanga or some of these other lesser known Toho creatures, you would still have to pay a licensing fee. Interesting. Which Whoa. was cost prohibitive. It's yeah. like, well, we could pay that fee or we could devote some of that money to more visual effects or other resources. And I also realized that, you know, one of the traditions of Toho movies is they're constantly adding new monsters. There's dozens of these things. And so I thought, well, what's a better opportunity and honor than to get to add to that pantheon? Decided to take that route. So yeah, we added Scylla, which is like, is a female sort of arachnid cephalopod sort of creature. And it's sort of like my, also a tip of the hat to Cthulhu and then Behemoth. And the love of Behemoth is that we rarely ever get other mammals in the giant monster realm. Usually there's some form of insect or well, reptile. Enemies, yeah. 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 But I was like, I want a good companion creature to Kong. And so I've loved all the creatures from the ice age. Cause again, usually they always come from like the Jurassic or Cretaceous era, but the idea of sort of an ice age Kaiju, you know, something on the woolly side. So that was the fun of it is just, To get to come up with these creatures, give them names, give them biographies. And then, yeah, to see the fans, like, really embrace them. And now I'm getting deluged with fan art and doodles and people making their own little stop motion movies with the toys and stuff like that. Oh, that's great. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Like, There's no greater joy than making a monster and having that monster find their own feet and take on their own life and giving it to the world and watching the world sort of saying, thank you, we'll take it from here. Yeah, and they right. nurture the monster yeah. themselves. And like, it's... they're they're all going to outlive me. It's the Dr. Frankenstein in me. Right. <laughs> <laughs> You're doing writing on the new Kong that's coming out, right? Zach and I did a very brief, like, one month rewrite.
1: Yeah. Okay. So beyond that, what's immediate for you right now? Is there anything on the horizon or are you just kind of chilling
4: right now? And I have not yet had a break. <laughs> oh, wow. Oh, geez. Uh, well, it, I mean, I have, I've had a... I'm doing a little less. I mean, when you make a movie, it's all consuming. And I think everybody should make a film, whether it's a, a short film or a feature, or what have you. Everyone should experience the highs, the lows, the pains and the joys of making a film because right. there's nothing like it. And, you know, and thankfully we live in an era where... Every single person in this room and listening to this podcast has a fucking HD camera in their pocket with editing software and distribution channel. Like right now we can make a short film and have it on YouTube before the end of the day. So everybody should do this. Spend less time on social media, spend more time getting creative and actually making something, making something real, please. It makes you stronger in a way that said, like having gone through three years of Godzilla I was near death by the
2: end
4: oh, you know. So it took some time in, like, my sarcophagus to sort of regrow and regenerate. But even in the tail end of post-production on Godzilla, I was gestating some other projects. I need to take a vacation. So I've earmarked December and January, where I've got a flip phone and a laptop with no Wi-Fi. Sweet! And yes. so I'm, I'm getting off the Matrix, and I'm just going to take some time to regenerate. But before that, I have been planting some seeds for other projects, all of which are starting to gestate. Are they horror? They are a mix of horror and sci-fi. Nice. And they all involve monsters of one form or another. Yes. Some of which are familiar and well known to our listeners others of which are original oh that's Very fantastic Yay. yeah so i oh. wish i could say more but my partners on these projects would crucify me yeah,
3: yeah. <laughs> we don't want that
4: yeah. <laughs> i'll just come back in three days exactly yeah, yeah, three days yeah.
3: i know you were talking a lot about the supernatural have you had any ghost encounters yes i want to hear oh, about shit. Them.
4: yes and i'm not shy about talking about this stuff i mean probably should be but Like I mentioned earlier, horror films and science fiction, all they did was sort of spur an interest in that subject matter. And I think that's the fun of it, is that fantasy, horror, sci-fi, they ask you to sort of consider the possibility that some of the stuff might be real. I'll never forget walking out of Raiders of the Lost Ark, and my dad said, you know, the Ark of the Covenant's a real thing, right? Like, what are you talking about?
2: <laughs> yeah. You know,
4: or The Omen, same thing. Yeah, right. Book of Revelation, go look it up. And yep. then, so yeah, I would watch these genre films on Saturdays and spend time in the library on Sundays yep. researching this stuff. When you read about the Bermuda Triangle or UFOs, the two sort of fed each other. Yeah, And so I have a very passionate interest in all that weird shit ancient aliens is one of my all-time favorite (laughs) nice tv shows like i went to peru with some friends just to visit some ancient alien sites oh that's cool like if i wasn't making movies about this stuff i would be researching it studying it i still have that desire i have that desire to sort of press pause on making the movies and just bury myself in it because the times that i have taken the time to do it i've experience some really weird shit. One of my favorite stories goes back to seventh grade. In the seventh grade, you had to do a science fair experiment. Mm -hmm. It wasn't optional. Every kid had to participate in science fair, which is good because kids should learn more about science and the scientific method. And you had your run of people making papier-mâché volcanoes, and I'm going to (laughs) grow these plants indoors and these plants outdoors. (laughs) (laughs) And at the time I was reading Firestarter and Carrie. I don't know if anyone has actually read Firestarter, but King really did his homework about how the CIA and various government agencies had genuinely been investigating the possibility of using psychic warfare. Like uh, Project Sargate. Yeah, exactly. And so I was fascinated with that. And so I told my teacher, I said... I don't want to make a paper mache volcano. I want to test my classmates for psychic ability. <laughs> she's like, no, that's science fiction. You can't do that. You're reading too much Stephen King. Right. I'm sorry. And so I, I showed her all the books on parapsychology and psychic phenomenon that I checked out of the library. Right. So the school like, library, probably. Yeah. <laughs> and she's like, all right, you win. Go for it. And so what I did was I tested all my classmates using... The ESP cards that you see at the beginning of Ghostbusters. Yeah! Like that's the wavy lines and the (laughs) And and like that, those are real. That's not just something like, there's no electrocution involved. (laughs) Right. (laughs) That's their own comedic touch. Right. Oh, man. But I tested, I think there were 70 kids in seventh grade. I sat across from them at a table and there was a big poster board between us. Right. So there was no eye contact. They couldn't see me. I couldn't see them. It's a deck of 25 cards five symbols. I think it's circle, square, squiggly lines, a star, and one other. Triangle, maybe? Anyway, so I draw a card from the deck, and I hold it up, and I'm supposed to focus on it, and they're supposed to make a telepathic link to guess, or on their gut instinct, figure out what card I'm looking at, right? And supposedly, and here's the thing, as much as I believe in this stuff, or want to believe in it, Mulder style, I'm also a skeptic, like, I need proof, right? <laughs> right? I mean, otherwise you go down some really wily rabbit holes. Every kid fails the test miserably, okay? Because I guess on average, most people will get like one or two cards out of 25. Right, right? just based right. on odds. Right, right. Yeah. just based on guessing. If you get three or four, that's seen as like a mild blip, right? Worthy of being examined again. Most kids got zero to two. So either below average or on average, chalk it up to coincidence. Except for one girl, <laughs> What (laughs) one girl who I will not. I know her full name, but I'm not going to say it on here because I don't (laughs) want her Facebook to light up. Her first name was Kelly. Kelly gets 17 out of 25 cards. Correct. No. Yeah. I've got the goosebumps. I'm like shaking. Like, oh my god, I've got Carrie White in my class. Yeah, right? <laughs> right. and she had no interest in doing this experiment. By the way, like, she was completely disinterested. Didn't like me, <laughs> and like, she could tell something was up. She's like, "What's up, nerd?" And I'm like, uh, <laughs> "I'm like, we have to run the test again." So we run the test again. 17 out of 25 cards (gasps) correct the second time. Like, this is 100% true. I'll never forget this day because I'm getting chills just talking about it. Yeah, me too. Again. So that was like a very early indicator for me, just personally, that there's something out there. And because I personally believe it's just an innate ability that a lot of us probably have, and it's probably sort of a survival technique that we just haven't developed. People like to say like, well, if you're psychic, why don't you win the lottery? And it's like, well, if you're an athlete, Like, why can't you always do a slam dunk? Right. You know, like most people are barely talented at anything, but to actually get good at something, you have to practice, practice, practice and know how to practice. And that's just something that none of us have ever bothered to to really look into. So that was a really good one. And ever since then, I've just been hooked and I've just explored sort of as a hobby. I have another really good one. Yeah. yeah. I have two more good ones. But this one, <laughs> the beauty of this other one is that there were two witnesses to this story. I was in a car with my roommate at the time. His name is Sean. Sean Ashmore, the actor. Yeah. Yeah. Ice Band, yeah, that's right. right. Yeah. And I, I'm only divulging his full name because he doesn't care. I've asked him, like, <laughs> is it OK if I talk? Like like, yeah, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> and so we were driving down the 10 and the 10 highway in L.A. To make a long story short, we almost get into this horrible accident where we came close to death. Like, basically, I think we were changing lanes, a semi-truck came in, like, through a blind spot, almost killed us. Jeez. We had to pull over to the side of the road just to, like, breathe, calm down, and just thank the powers that be that we're alive. His phone rings. Sean has a twin brother, an identical twin brother named Aaron, who was in Toronto at the time. And Sean picks up the phone, and Aaron says, breathless, Oh, thank God you answered your phone. I just had a nightmare. You died in a car accident.
2: What?
3: Oh, oh, no way. Yeah.
4: yeah. They have the shining. That's
2: <laughs>
3: crazy. Oh gosh, yeah. That's so oh, crazy. And like,
4: anybody's free to ask them about this. Like, yeah. I, I just saw them a few weeks ago. And we Did talked they talk about it, about it themselves oh, yeah. too? Like, oh, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. They talked about it openly. We had a little hangout for their birthday and they're like, yep, that happened. That's wow. Crazy. You know, but again, like, so it's just, it's just these little blips, these little blips in reality in the right. matrix that make you go, huh? But I just feel like if you research it and you are just you approach it with an open but skeptical mind, you will possibly encounter things.
3: Have you researched reincarnation?
4: I've done the hypnosis. Yeah. <gasps> really? I haven't had as many experiences with that. I have some story ideas for it, but I haven't gone down that rabbit hole that much yet. Because like when I did the hypnosis, it's like I came out of it not fully believing it because they sort of guide you on this little trip okay. yeah. and I saw things but that might have been my own imagination sure. right you know what I mean so I can't say that it, I'm a firm believer
3: anytime I, I have deja vu I feel like
4: oh well, that could be it or whatever uh, yeah i yeah. like
3: I've been here before like I've done this yeah it's I mean weird. it's
4: who knows very yeah. possible the classic experience I think everyone's had at least once in their life is you think of somebody and then they happen to call you Yeah. Or you happen to run into them. I've had that as recently as a couple weeks ago. I was thinking of a friend that I hadn't spoken to in years. And this is like two thirty in the morning. Right. I'm getting ready to go to bed. And and I was like, man, I haven't heard from that guy in a long time before I could finish a thought. My phone rings. And it was him. Wow! You know? And I, it's fun. That's the kind of stuff that keeps me going. You know, I'd like to believe that there are just things that we have not figured out about the world or ourselves yet. What was that other story?
2: Oh.
4: It's a minor one, but it's it's just, it's just again, it's one of those moments. And um, I was laying in bed with the person I was seeing at the time. And so, again, there's a witness to this one. Yeah. Like, those are my favorite stories where there are yeah. witnesses. Right. Woke up to the sound of... on my bedroom door (gasps) which was shut and locked and the house was locked up and like the alarm system was on you can't even oh no you can't approach my house without the alarms going off is this at night or day night okay yeah (sighs) so we both woke up to just the sounds of like pounding on and it wasn't like oh my this wasn't like a house creak this wasn't like this was like like, conscious pounding on the door kind of thing
3: i want to call the police
4: yeah. I would have. Well, I was like, I was kind of excited about yeah. it. Like, <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be interesting no matter what. Yeah. <laughs> so like, I, you know, I, I, I can turn on all the house lights from like one switch in my room. Right. That like looked under the door jam, like all that stuff. When that you
3: opened like, the door, like what was there? No one was nothing. Oh. oh.
4: Wow. Yeah. yeah. And I've had past roommates tell me that they've had experiences and. My assistant at the time, he would house it with his girlfriend every now and then, and they had a really intense experience. I find it all reassuring in a way, not in a religious sense, but just the idea that there's more to our reality, because personally, I want to be a ghost. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, like, yeah I, We, I, we like, all do. Like, I don't <laughs> want to go to heaven and just have to sit there with a bunch of relatives. Like, <laughs> Unless I'm like down on earth, like scaring the fuck out of people. Boo, bitch. <laughs>
2: yeah. Like, like,
4: like anything else is hell <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. You know, right. like I'm already scaring my neighbors. It's not even Halloween yet. Can you talk oh. about
3: that? Because that's so awesome.
4: Yeah. So like uh, all the Halloween decorations went up first week in October and like I had people over to help decorate it. I've been scaring trick-or-treaters with my friends for like going on I think 12, 15 years now. Yes. <laughs> and there's no there's nothing like it. You know, <laughs> it's like the one time a year you can do it and not get punched or arrested. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. And it's like and then the thing is, and the parents are laughing and cackling because yeah. like there's some dark part of every parent that's like kind of getting revenge on their kids. Yes. Of course. <laughs> like, all the stuff the kids right. put them through the rest of the year. Yeah. But I find it's also like I think you're teaching kids courage. So if you do a home haunt and you make it just scary enough that they have to overcome that rush of like adrenaline and fear hormones that are coursing through their systems and they get that candy, you're teaching your kid to be brave. True. The same way my dad made me walk through the haunted mansion or made me get on a roller coaster and stop being such a wimp about it like if you don't do that to your kids like you have more to worry about later in life than if you do make them go through that's it yeah. You yeah, know? So like it's like letting your kids play in dirt to right. develop their immune system Yes, yeah. you know so my house is a facilitator <laughs> <laughs> for making kids braver and stronger <laughs> <laughs> you provide a service absolutely you know but it's but it was, <clears throat> what's been great about it because it is a tradition that's been going on for so long that like parents will come up with their kid who's like around 10 or 11 and they're so proud they're like this is the first year you made it to the front door
2: wow <laughs> made it to the front door <laughs> you know? it's, like, it's, like, wow. it's like
4: every year in the past he, he ran away crying but this is the first year he made it up <laughs> you know and like and if a kid is too traumatized we'll back off and like give him high yeah. fives and you know all that kind of stuff so we're not we're not literal monsters but the neighborhood loves it and like when the decorations are going up you know the neighbors come by and it's the only time I actually talk to my neighbors you know like <laughs> we love your decorations Although I did find out that there's this horrible website called Nextdoor. Oh, I know that. Yeah, yeah, we know that. God, it's like... It's crazy like,
3: people Crazy yeah. With
4: too much time On their hands Way too yeah. much time yeah. You know Like yeah. it's just call, Just call it nosy neighbor Cause that's what it is Exactly <laughs> right. I know the intentions Are good but Jesus Yeah So some neighbor Like posted a picture Of the house Oh no And said Does anyone else Find this disturbing Oh, <laughs> <man>. oh my <laughs> <God>. <laughs> <Come> on, <laughs> Because there are baby dolls Like hanging from the tree <laughs> Right You know And they're like I just think the dead babies are, are an issue And it's like Why do you think They're dead babies They're dolls Like <laughs> yeah. you're the one Making that correlation You yeah, exactly. sick yeah. fuck yeah. <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. But most of my 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 latest thing is that um, I really love all the smart home technology. So I've been placing motion sensors outside the house, which trigger noises as people walk by. That's, and that's so fun. That's a real treat. So if you walk by my driveway, you'll hear like the roars of like a dinosaur from the garage.
3: <laughs> it's amazing.
4: Yeah. I love it. Yeah. Official
0: Toho Godzilla.
4: <laughs> yeah, right. What? For no, sound you, design. You, <laughs> yeah, you can. You actually because like, you can trigger a Spotify playlist. Oh, okay. Yeah, so you just create a Spotify playlist and mine is like Garage Dinosaur. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and you can actually add like Godzilla roars are on Spotify as, oh, as like an cool. album. Oh, that's cool. Oh, that's yeah. Cool. So, that's yeah. Sweet. So I just like using technology for imagineering at home. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's fun. So quick, a quick
0: Doherty Yeah, hell yeah. We were at Delusion a few years ago. That's right. Oh
4: yeah, that was fun. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah.
0: And i big fan of your work, you know, and, and I had no idea what you look like. <laughs> and we were trapped in a closet at one point, pitch black. <laughs> the, yeah, with him. You were yeah, tapping to my left, <laughs> Trevor's to my right, and I hear these noises that sound like Sam from Trick or Treat, or these kids, and I'm like... I was so creeped out, man, and afterwards I told Trevor go, "Hey dude, you he hear those noises in the closet and he goes yeah that was my door. yeah I think
1: yeah you were in the <laughs> co- <laughs> I was like no
4: fucking way I was like, no, no wait, wait, idea that was me. I making the noises I think you were yeah yeah, I think, were. Uh, yeah, no, I think you were I was makes sense
1: is there one haunted attraction or maze that you've been to that you find is the scariest that you've ever been to
4: the scariest for me goes back to childhood in Ohio we had a thing called J.C.'s haunted house okay mm. and the J.C.'s were like a non-profit oh yeah organization that's right and they would throw these haunted houses, you know, for the community and as a way to like, you know, as fundraisers. And that one was especially real because it was like out in the boondocks, like in an old farmhouse, you had to drive through a cornfield to get to it with an old water tower. So it was very real. And um, but the good thing about L.A. is that as weird as it sounds, like there's no better city to to really Immerse yourself in the Halloween spirit than Los Angeles yes. because between Disneyland, Not Scary Farm, Six Flags, Horror Nights, and then Magic Castle. Or delusion, or these, you know, or the smaller yeah. haunts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's an endless variety of, of Halloween attractions. Like, it's like it's almost exhausting. <laughs> yeah, like, it's impossible it to like, do it I'm, all. I'm I'm yeah. running on fumes because like I've been doing so much Halloween stuff. Yeah, as so and like as much as I want to like go to Salem or go to the East Coast because they have the better atmosphere with the chilly air. Yes, leaves yeah. Leave yeah. everywhere. Yeah, it's hard to leave L.A. for Halloween. Among L.A. haunts, I don't have a favorite. Like it's still it's still a running competition.
3: <laughs> have you been to Zach Baggins? Haunted Museum in Vegas? No. I haven't gone either
1: I want to go Yeah everyone's been Telling us it is Amazing Okay. Do you know Anything about that No Zach Baggins Host of Travel Channel's Ghost Ghost Adventures adventures, Mm -hmm. And he collects Haunted items And objects From different cases He's got stuff From like the Warren's investigation Really And he bought A Victorian mansion In Vegas And he put All the stuff in there There's also a lot Of serial killer things I I forget whose Van But yeah There's all sorts Of crazy stuff And apparently Crazy stuff happens To the objects He had to shut down The museum recently Because someone Just passed out out randomly started uh, crying by a chair that was used in an exorcism <laughs> by the Warrens.
2: Uh,
1: but yeah, it's it's, it's it sounds pretty interesting. Yeah. yeah. And he was tied to that movie that we talk about a lot on the show. We always talk yeah. about it because I refuse to watch it. Demon House. He did a documentary okay. called Demon House that's no. allegedly possessed. There's actually a warning at the beginning of the movie that things were happening while they were making the movie uh-huh. that were shutting down camera equipment. Wow. A, new, a whole news channel was airing clips. Their whole system got shut down cool. while they were trying to air the stuff back so there's a risk of electronic possession i guess uh, from I watching demon it. house I'm but yeah, it. There yeah we that's go. a
0: crazy case man that happened well like uh, not that long ago six seven years ago yeah in gary indiana and there were a bunch of witnesses that witnessed some paranormal stuff possession stuff you know At one point like the boy walked up the wall uh-huh. The ceiling backwards Witnessed by uh, Social workers and doctors Fuck yeah I love it And then I mean, yeah it, Zach yeah. had
1: heard about this So he bought the house yeah. Where this is happening Which cash Just right away Over the phone And wow. uh, then Just shipped his team there And they investigated it And made this documentary All And right, check it out That it makes really me cool. happy it's It fucked cool. the whole Crew up Including Zach Which you'll see I guess when you watch it But it have had Lasting effects on everybody but so. just
4: I mean the, If I saw that happen I would just be so overjoyed Because the implications right? Of that <laughs> Right <laughs> It means every Everything's true, exactly. I mean, Life right. is real. Right. Demons, angels, ghosts, what have you. Right. It's like, all oh, right, it's a party,
2: <laughs> right. you know. Right. Like, what's to
4: be afraid of, right? That's yeah. true, right?
1: It opens, it right. blows the fucking doors open, man. Well, awesome, Mike. Thank you so much oh, for yes. joining us, man. It's been a oh, pleasure. Thank you. Yes, thanks, honor. Yeah,
3: come back anytime. It's yes, sure. like my favorite. I love your stories.
1: That was the new Crew Podcast, episode eighty.
3: Special thanks to our guest, Michael Doherty.
1: Follow him at Mike underscore Score Doherty on Twitter and see all his movies if you haven't already, including Trick or Treat, Krampus, and Godzilla, King of the Monsters, available
2: on digital and Blu ray everywhere.
3: Till next time, it's The Boo Crew saying, this. See you on the other side.
2: Thanks for listening to another episode of The Boo Crew Podcast. Haunt The Boo Crew at Tales from the Boo Crew.com. Tales from the Boo Crew on Facebook and Instagram. Follow us on Twitter at Tales from the Boo. The Boo Crew is Tim Timebomb. Leone D'Antonio, Lauren and Trevor Shand, Austin Wilkin and Rachel Tejada. The Boo Crew is produced by Lauren Shand, chopped and sliced by Trevor Shand. The Boo Crew is a TSP creation. Part of the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network. Bye! The Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network,
0: home of the Boo Crew. For horror-centric interviews, SCP Archives, weekly full cast storytelling, horror queers, genre commentary from an LGBTQ perspective, and creepy. For disturbing and terrifying creepy pastas. Listen free wherever you stream audio, and at bloodydisgusting.com/podcasts.